The book of 2 Corinthians is the Apostle Paul's second letter to the believers in Corinth who were being influenced by false teachers proclaiming a different gospel. As a physician cleans and bandages a wound, Paul addresses the contamination of the Corinthians' hearts and applies the healing balm of the gospel. Paul uses their real-life situations to apply gospel truths in real time. The gospel is worked into our hearts, causing us to recognize its deep implications in every dimension of life. We can trust that the Holy Spirit is working to transform our hearts, unmasking our own cultural idols, and recentering our lives around the promises of God. 2 Corinthians Am I on here? Yeah. I hope you have your Bibles open at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, the sermon, in a sense, starts at uh, verse 14, but we're going to review something uh, before we get there. And I'm just trying to get uh, a little bit organized here. <clears throat> I probably shouldn't say it right about, you know, Columbus. What do you think? <laughs> I heard a pastor say, and I'm hoping the sermon isn't like that, but that some sermons are like Christopher Columbus. When he started out, he didn't know where he was going. When he arrived, he didn't know where he was. And when he returned, he really didn't know where he had been. <laughs> and then somebody says that the uh, mark of a, a great sermon is it has a great opening, a great ending, and the opening and the ending are really close together. <laughs> so, last week, um, we ended with Paul's emotional appeal from a heart of love toward the Corinthians who were withholding their love from Paul and those he ministered with in Corinth. I mean, I emphasized this last week, but maybe we don't think about it enough. He was 18 months in Corinth. He had led the majority of those to the Lord, and he had discipled all of them for 18 months, and he didn't have any distractions. He was able to spend day and night with them. He lived with them, and he uh, was there all that time. And when he left the church, he left the church full of joy because he left this great church as he went on to encourage and start other churches. But then, of course, uh, some things happened that weren't so great, and he had to write some letters. He wrote, wrote four letters to the church. We don't have two of them, especially the severe letter I've talked about uh, to you last week, which we'll talk about again this week. But at the end of uh, our sermon last week, it was 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, 12, and 13. Uh, we get to see a little bit of Paul's passion here and his love for the Corinthians, and as I put it on the screen, or you can look at it in your Bible, either way, 2 Corinthians 6.11, Paul said, we, he's talking about himself and Titus and others that were with him, we have spoken freely to you Corinthians and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you're, you're withholding yours from us. And as a fair exchange, I speak to my children, open wide your hearts also. So Paul here 
is exhorting the Corinthians to develop close emotional bonds with each other, but to beware of doing so with those who are unbelievers. That's why we start at verse 14. Chapter 6, verse 14. It reads, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. We'll stop there. Yoked together. Or... Here's another way of translating it. You must not get into double harness with unbelievers. Actually, the best illustration of all is in the Old Testament from Deuteronomy chapter uh, 22, uh, verse 10. And it reads this way. Do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together. Now, the idea is that there are just some things which are incompatible and were never meant to be. William Barclay, in his commentary, says it is impossible for the purity of the Christian and the pollution of the pagan to run in double harness. So, if you yoked a heavy ox and strong ox and a much smaller, weaker donkey together to pull a plow, the ox would be slowed down because it would be dragging the weaker donkey along with the plow, and it would be impossible to plow in a straight line, therefore ruining the crops and all the fruit that could come from that. God has designed us for close, productive relationships. I actually was going to call the sermon originally one anotherness, but I discovered there is no such word. Anyhow, I like it. One anotherness, which means our relationships are to be mutually beneficial and our lives together are to reflect God's glory, talking to the Christian body, to Christians. This means that we must be careful in our business relationships and our social relationships and especially in our romantic relationships. Careful that we don't become so closely linked that our light becomes dim and God's glory is compromised. This takes great wisdom. We are certainly not to isolate ourselves from the world or the gospel will become hidden. We must not allow the world's darkness to compromise our relationships with other believers. It is one thing to have friends who are not Christians but we must be on our guard that their worldview does not cause us to compromise what we believe, to compromise the truth. So let's go back to the words of Paul, verse 14. He writes, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. And then he gives the reasoning. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? The answer is obvious. Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? You see, light chases away darkness, or the darkness can, like, put out the light. Verse 15, what harmony is there between Christ and Belial? That's an, an unusual word that means the Satan. And again, it's obvious. And what does a believer have in common with a non-believer? Well, now, wait, we have to stop there. Lots of things. Lots of things. I go out and ride my bike, and sometimes I see others that are non-believers, and we have bike riding in common. I'm faster than them, but other than that, uh, we have lots of other things in common. And then in verse 16, it says, What agreement is there between the temple of God 
and idols. Now, when this was first read in the Corinthian church, they would understand immediately what is being talked about here because he had already written to them in the first Corinthian letter about eating meat that came from idols, and that was the temples that they were used to go to the temples to make sacrifices. And he warned that they had to stay away from that so they could easily see here immediately what he's talking about. But here's the application. It comes in the next sentence. Here's why. Because we, obviously we is plural, are the temple of the living God. We, the body of Christ, the Bible name for church, we are the temple of God. And we've learned in the book of Ephesians especially that when you become a Christian, you receive the Holy Spirit, who is God, right away. And that means that your body, my body, our bodies individually are temples of the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit, who is God, within us. On the other hand, it says later on in chapter 4 of Ephesians that the church gathered, the plural church gathered, that we are in an even different way the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we can learn things together when we meet together. That's why Hebrews says, don't stop meeting together. This is a habit of son, because when we meet together, we can encourage one another. We can learn things that we would never learn otherwise. And so uh, in verse 16, he says, uh, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God, and as God has said... I will live with them and walk with them, and I will be their God, and they'll be my people. That's their promises from God. Actually, they're from the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 12 reads, Moses wrote it, but God was saying it, I will walk among you, that's the people of God, the Israelites at that time, and be your God, and you will be my people. Or Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 27, my dwelling place will be with them, that's God's people, I will be their God, and they will be my people. So then in verse 17, he says to the Corinthian Christians, remember, but it's to us too, therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. But what's the, who is them? That's the world the world, the flesh, and the devil. We need not fall in love with the world. It's really probably the biggest problem in the world today is that we're too much in love with the world, even in Christian circles. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. That means we're to live pure lives. We're to live pure, pure lives. doesn't mean perfect lives, but it means that we stay away from the things that are not permissible really for anybody, but especially for Christians. And then he says, I will be a father to you. That's kind of a nice sentence, if you're a partial sentence, if you think of it. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now, most of you know that only sons inherit in that day. In the original language, it just says, you'll be my sons. But there are, are no differences between male and female when it comes to spiritual realities. We're all sons of God. We're all inheritors of God. We inherit every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, according to the book of Ephesians. So verse 18 says, I will be a father to you, and you all will be my inheritors, says the Lord Almighty, El Shaddai, the God who can do anything. So to come out 
or to be separate should not be thought as a negative, but a joyful positive. We are to come out of the world and be separate from the world so we can set ourselves apart to be used of God. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The word filled means to be satisfied, to be spiritually satisfied. When our hunger and thirst, where we care as much about righteousness as we do when we're physically hungry or when we're physically thirsty, then we'll be satisfied. And Jesus didn't set up a list of rules to be obeyed but an an attitude of mind toward godliness. That's what it means to hunger and thirst. Israel was repeatedly told to be separate from the pagan culture, and their disobedience caused God to discipline them. But Jesus condemned the Pharisees, they were the religious leaders of the day, who went to the other extreme and separated themselves to the extent of keeping the truths of God completely away from the, from the culture, from the pagan culture. Now, Jesus, of course, was criticized for being a friend of publicans and sinners by the Pharisees. They didn't like the idea that he hung out with the so-called riffraff. Paul said in 1 Corinthians... These words, when I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. Now, stop there for a minute. Let's stop there just for a minute. It's shocking who he's talking about. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin. Or are greedy or cheap people or worship idols. You'd have to leave the world to avoid people like that. Alan Redpath, it's a little long but really worth it, said, wrote this. Separation is not a negative thing. It is a positive thing. It is not simply living contrary to the world, putting yourself in a little compartment labeled separated and making everybody mad at you. It's living in harmony with the passion of the heart of God for a world that is lost. That is separation. So separation is living in harmony with the passion of the heart of God for a world that is lost. Separation is investing every moment of your day, wherever you may be, in the ministry or in secular life, <coughs> Excuse me, to the glory of God in a commitment to his authority and power in your life without reservation. This means that day by day you live in such a way that you refrain from doing anything which would disturb your harmony with God. It is not a question simply of trying to empty your heart and life of every worldly desire. What an awful impossibility. It is rather opening your heart wide to all the love of God in Christ And letting that love just sweep through you and exercise this expulsive power till your heart is filled with love. I guess another way of saying it is we're to walk with God. And I said last week to walk with God means that we're to live our life in the presence of God. Now, chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, Paul says, Since we have these promises that I read some to you a moment ago, dear friends, 
let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness. Holiness means that we set our lives apart for God's purposes. Perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. This is an appeal for loving others as God loves. That's what it is. When God loves us, he gives us his all. We're to love him back with our all. The promises are what we have already read. God will dwell in our midst. God walks with us. We are his people and even his friend. He was a friend of Abraham. We studied that last Wednesday night. He's a friend. Uh, Jesus said that he's our friend. God is our father, and we are his sons and daughters. He's not asking us to be perfect, making no mistakes ever. The word perfect here means to be living in such a way that we are increasingly becoming more and more godly. Our goal in life isn't finding the right marriage partner or becoming the most successful man or woman in our profession or being the pastor of the most successful ministry. We are not to be attempting to make a name for ourselves, but to live for God Almighty in a way that makes God's name famous, not ours. Paul and Timothy and Titus have loved the Corinthians with all their hearts, and now they expect the same from the Corinthians. The application is that if they learn to live separated lives, if the Corinthians learn to live separated lives, it will be because they are responding to God's love, therefore they will be responding to each other's love too. Love is the real key to the separated life. Love God totally and then love others. Love Christians as brothers and sisters. Love non-Christians as lost sheep who need to be saved. So Paul again says in verse 2, chapter 7, just like we started, make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. Now, you all know that I, I like to sit back and read through the passage I'm going to preach on over and over again in all kinds of different versions, trying to come up with the context what would, what would they hear when this is being read to them? What tone of voice would they imagine that Paul is speaking? And he was with them for 18 months, so they knew his voice. So how would they imagine his, vo- his voice? It's very important we understand that. And uh, so it's not like this. He's not saying, make room for us in your hearts. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. No, that's not it. They wouldn't have heard it that way either. He's saying, make room for us in your hearts. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I don't want you to feel guilty. That's not my purpose. I've said before that you have such a place in your hearts that we do, we would die, live or die with you. I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all your troubles. My joy knows no bounds. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. 
I mean, this is incredible if you really think about it. I mean, think with me for a minute. We have this whole situation where Paul has been in the church. He's left the church. He's so excited about what's happening in the church. He's bragging about the church to others. We'll even say where he says that later and all of that kind of thing. And then these Judaizers come in. I call them false teachers. They are, but they're Judaizers. They were Jewish teachers that wanted the people to do all the Jewish stuff all of the things that Jesus fulfilled and gave them, set them on guilt trips. And they were legalists. And, and they wanted to impose the Jewish customs, the Jewish practices on the non-Jewish followers of Jesus. After Paul had taught differently about the new covenant, after all, he was an ex-Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was one of the top echelon. So his heart now was, no, no, you need... We have a new covenant. You need to love one another. And then what I like about what he said, especially in verse 4, I like the word confidence. I also like the word encouragement here. It's so important. We must, all of us, encourage one another as often as is possible. But there's other things you need to do too. We'll see that near the end. But we need to encourage one another because when you encourage somebody, then the best can come out of them. Pastor Chuck Swindoll tells of a teacher he had in high school by the name of Dick Nimi. Young Chuck was a severe stutterer. He could hardly put two words together. It's hard to believe if you know anything about him. He was just a severe stutterer. And this teacher took time in the early mornings to teach him to talk properly, and Chuck became a great debater, even winning major debate contests. And of course, he's one of the best, he's one of the great Bible teachers, one of the great authors and leaders of our time. He's 89 years old and still leading a mega church. It's amazing the ministry he has and the books he's written. Christian love does not give up on others. I, I can't help it if someone won't let me love them or help them, but we all must be willing to be available to encourage and even inspire those among us who need extra attention. In the uh, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, we have the love chapter. Love is a verb. And at the end of it, it says there's three things remain, and, and the three things are faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these, it says, is love. But wait a minute, let's think about it for a minute. If you don't have faith, then you can't have hope. If you don't have faith, then you can't love the way God loved. But if you do have faith, if you do, then you're a hopeful person and you can inspire hope in others. And the word love is a verb. It's something we do. That's why the greatest of these things is love. Everyone is to love. It's something we do, and it's something that we can give away. We can give our love away to others and literally change the world. So now back to verse 4. Paul says, In all our troubles, my joy knows no bound. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts, that's the word for persecutions, on the outside. Fears within, it's a very unusual Greek word. 
Now, I've said often that my favorite English Christian word is joy. In the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, it says the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. It was because of joy that Paul was able to encourage the Corinthians and survive the pressure of living in the Christian culture, which was totally against everything that Christianity is for. Here we discover that when Paul left Corinth full of joy, his circumstances changed dramatically. There were numerous trials, conflicts, and internal fears. Last week, we learned of the beatings and the hunger and the lack of sleep and even prison that Paul had suffered. But this word here for fears within is a very different thing. The word fears is the Greek word pronounced phobos, or in English, phobia. Phobia. One commentator writes this about the word. It carries the idea of dread and panic, a shrinking from courage, and the desire to run for cover. Paul and his fellow workers struggled against distressing fears. Paul survived this terrible fear because God provided relief through relationships. Now, I cannot exaggerate how important it is to maintain relationships within the body of Christ, the Bible name for church. Nothing satisfies me more than Christians. I'm, I said it wrong. Nothing saddens me more. I need glasses. Well, something, nothing saddens me more uh, than Christians who live their lives apart from the necessity to be an active part of the body of Christ even attending church, but refusing to deepen relationships with other believers, our brothers and sisters in Christ. So look at verse 6. But God. So he's talking about all this terrible thing, especially this overwhelming fear. But God, who comforts the downcast. That's a word for discouragement or even for, for a lot more than just discouragement, but to be totally depressed. But God, the God who comforts the downcast, the discouraged, the depressed, God comforted us by the coming of Titus. Now, I need to just kind of explain that. Uh, there's this severe letter that I told you about last week that Paul wrote to the Corinthians that we don't have a copy of. Titus delivered the letter. So Titus had left, and now he's back, and uh, he had delivered the letter. So it says, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. Notice how everybody is all about people. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. That's quite an amazing thing. Actually, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, if you were here for it, you'll remember it. Uh, Paul's, these are Paul's words. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, the one who saves Christ, the Messiah, the Father of compassion, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble. Notice it's not just God, but it's people with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Wow, that's amazing. 
So we all need God, but also God's people. I mentioned the same thing on Wednesday in the Genesis study and talked about someone who came to this church years ago and no longer attends church at all. And they said, I'm using they because I'm hoping that they will come back, but they said that they had never really come to know anyone in the church even after being here for many years. How sad. When we have troubles, we must avoid denial. Don't ever live in denial. You won't if you live among people who have the right to talk into your life. So when we have troubles, we must avoid denial, but not avoid meeting together with others. Now, listen, sometimes you're at home and you're thinking, I don't want to go to church. I just feel terrible. I didn't have to be there. I need the money, so I have to come. But um, <laughs> I mean, if you're, you really can. I, I, thought, I said to somebody this morning, I've prayed about this. I'm a real hypocrite because there's some times where I, I don't want to be around anybody. Leave me alone. But that's exactly the time that we need to be around everybody we can. And uh, we must never avoid meeting together with others. When we are depressed or discouraged or grieving, being alone can cause hopelessness, which is the most dangerous emotions of all. Paul said that we are to grieve, yes, but with hopefulness. Those who don't know God as Father grieve without hope. We grieve knowing that we still have a forever future and also that the cause of our grief can only last during this lifetime and in eternity there are no more tears, no more sorrow. But if we attempt to handle grief or any other severe circumstance in life without the help of God and others, we will fail. Self-pity and self-help cause self-destruction. Work hard at relationships in the body of Christ. These last last few verses that we're going to look at now are a picture of Paul's wisdom. Wisdom. How many times have I said that wisdom is needed badly in our day? Worldwide, I don't think there's been a time, there's certainly no time in, in my life history where the world's been in the state it's in right now. We need wisdom. The problem is, Wisdom does not come from book learning or even experience. Unless the wise person knows God, wisdom is really impossible. In the book of Job, uh, God says to you, all humanity, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. You see, the fear of the Lord is not, oh, I'm afraid of God. No, that's not the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord that it's talking about here is not just the respect for God. I have respect for lots of people, but it's the awe of God. The fear of the Lord is the awe of God, which makes us want to be around him. It makes us want to uh, talk to him and to be part of what he's doing. That's the fear of the Lord. And that is wisdom. And then it says to shun evil is understanding because wisdom gives us understanding. In Proverbs chapter 9, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. We need understanding today, not just opinions, 
but understanding. And finally, in the book of James, we read this promise. Now, here's a promise that you can claim. If any one of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. Who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you? So do you want wisdom? Fear the Lord. Ask God to give you wisdom, and he'll do so. He'll do so. Wisdom comes from God and is based on God's unchanging truth. No wonder there's such lack of wisdom in the world today. We've forgotten God. Without the fear of the Lord, there may be good intentions, but no true wisdom. Paul had wisdom. We need wisdom. Wisdom can change the world. Be careful of judging people. Uh, you know, in this, we've so divided today, every place. And somebody comes on TV and says something really dumb and stupid, and they're part of some group, whatever, that we don't like. And so we oh, get on Facebook, or we get somebody, what a stupid thing to say. They don't know any better. To them, that's their wisdom. They don't know any better. So they don't need us to yell and holler at them. They need us to, we need to find ways to, to get to those people, to love them, to pray for them. You know, one of the things I do when I go out on my bike rides is I pray for our government. And I don't say, oh, God, get rid of that one and get rid of this one. No, I never do that. You know, I, I, I'm grieved at some of the totally stupid things some of these people say. But they don't know any better. They don't have wisdom. And, you know, I grew up in a time, and people old like me have, where everything was still influenced by, by the biblical model, even though people didn't know that. And so people were different because there was, we actually, without even realizing it, believed in absolute truth, and this is right, and that's wrong, and, uh, you know, a man's a man, a woman's a woman, and all that kind of stuff. But today, you have people that have grown up with a totally different culture. They don't know any of that. And so we make, need to make sure that we're doing all we can to reach them with love. And, and it's just, uh, it just really makes me sor sorrowful thinking about how we complain about those who literally don't know what they're doing. In a sense, they're mentally deficient and they don't even know it. Anyhow, that's, I didn't mean to say all that. I didn't write it down, so I shouldn't have. So verse 8. So here's Paul again. Verse 8. Even if I caused you sorrow in my letter, that's a severe letter we mentioned last week. There was terrible sexual sin in the church that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, even pagans wouldn't do anything like that. It was so terrible. And it was the Christians that were doing it. So even if I cause you sorrow on my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. This is a, an important verse. Godly sorrow brings repentance. He's talking to the Christian community that leads to salvation. They're already saved. So he's talking about leads to growth. You could say it this way, that leads to spiritual growth because you're saved and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings 
death. Godly sorrow includes forgiveness and reconciliation, whereas worldly sorrow causes bitterness and separation. Worldly sorrow causes pride to rise its ugly head and keeps people separated in disagreement. The difference between the two can be seen in Judas and Jesus. Judas regretted what he had done, but Peter repented of what he had done. One lived and the other died. Here is Paul's example to encourage them. Verse 11. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. I mean, he's so, this is a happy, joyful statement. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What eagerness. That's a word that means sincerity of heart. I mean, what earnestness. And then what eagerness. To to clear yourselves. What indignation with those who cause the trouble. What alarm. What longing. What concern. What readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. That's really encouraging. Paul is being overly generous here. Clearly, they have repented, though, and realized they should have stopped the sin and not listened to the Judaizers without bringing Paul into the mix. Paul has no need here to say, I told you so. He never had to say that. So, verse 12, even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. You see, he was reminding them of all the time he had spent teaching them. How could he, he, he doesn't say it. He doesn't have to. But what he's saying between the lines, as they say, he's saying, I've already taught you all this stuff, and now you're coming to realize it, so that's really good. And he says in verse 13, by all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. Now listen to this. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. I mean, he's good guys. He's patting them on the back. Now, Titus is usually overlooked by sermons on the passage. I imagine the last place Titus wanted to return to with this severe letter uh, was Corinth. He knew about the sexual problem. It was pretty severe. A man had sexual relations with his father's wife. And that's why Paul said even pagans wouldn't do something like that. But the way Titus was received... And the encouragement he was able to deliver to Paul was worth the visit. You never know when you go to someone that has misused you or done something really bad. You may be surprised if you go with a true heart of love. And then verse 15. And his affection for you, Titus's affection for you, is all the greater when he remembers that you are all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling, and then Paul says, I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. This is amazing if you've been in the last series, the last few sermons, to see how Paul puts this together. Now, hopefully, we all see the need for friendships in the body of Christ, the church. 
but we must be responsive to those friendships and develop relationships that allow others to challenge us when we're not doing the right thing. Proverbs 27, 6. The wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. Our friendships must include those who are able to challenge us biblically. Don't run from criticism. Even if it's unfair, there's a kernel of truth in it. It took me a long time to really realize that. I'm one of those people, you know, some people say, they, you've heard me say this before, that, you know, I wish I had said that. I never do. I say it. <laughs> and so I had to learn to, to zip my mouth sometimes. Don't, don't run from criticism. Work things out. Uh, you may need others to intervene in certain circumstances, but don't allow unforgiveness to fester in your life and don't ever leave a local church in anger or bitterness ever. I mean, how do we explain to the world of unbelievers that we can't get along with one another and at the same time tell them that we all have the Holy Spirit who is God living in our lives? So I'm going to leave us with two scriptures, maybe a, a twist on them you never thought of. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says that God disciplines those he loves. He doesn't discipline the neighbor's children, his own children, that's us. And uh, so it says in Hebrews 12, 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Now, God could send a lightning strike to... I have a friend that was struck by lightning on his front lawn twice <laughs> and lived through it. Can you imagine? I, don't, I heard somebody tell me a statistic once. I can't remember. It doesn't matter. It's almost impossible that you're going to hit by lightning. And uh, he did the impossible twice and survived <laughs> both times. Uh, God could do that, yes. But mostly what he does is he brings another person into our life. That's the way he disciplines most times. And we need to be open to that. And we need to be the type of people who's, who's someone who sees us where we're wrong, who would be willing and, uh, and want to uh, talk to us about how we do this or don't do that. And then we look at the next verse here, 2 Timothy 2, verses 16 and 17. It reads all scriptures, talking mostly about the Hebrew scriptures, but not only, uh, because the New Testament hadn't been completed yet. But all scriptures, God breathed. God breathed means it's inspired by God. And is useful for teaching. Now, that's happening right now. I'm teaching. I'm a person, part of the body of Christ, an equal to all of you, or all equal. But God has given me the gift of teaching, and so I'm using the gift for all of our sake. And believe me, I learn more from putting these sermons together than, uh, than almost anybody would learn just listening to one. And so the, that's a person does that. Then the next word is rebuking and then correcting. And I can imagine somebody thinking, well, yes, I understand that. You're having your quiet time. There's nobody around. You're reading the Bible. And then all of a sudden you read a verse, oh, God's correcting me. Oh, God's rebuking me. And then I pray and I'm, I'm fine. And that's probably, that's true. That happens. Yes, it's happened to me only once a day or so. But, um, but really mostly rebuking and correcting comes from 
another person? Are you open enough that somebody could strongly rebuke you with the scriptures in love? You know, we're to bear one another burden. Galatians says, somebody was asking me about that up between services. We're to bear one another's burdens. We're to be a one another people. If you can come to church and walk in and walk out without particularly saying anything other than, hi, how are you? Good, I'm fine, thanks, and that's it. Just stop it. This is your family. We need one another. It's important that we understand how important that is. And sometimes we need one another because some of the other needs to tell me something that I need to change. I mean, I've had out-and-out arguments loud with people who have come and got upset at me because of something I said in a sermon. And then the problem with me is that the way I argue is halfway through I realize, oh, they're probably right. But that doesn't matter. <laughs> and then it's, it's really, you have to go back and say, I'm so sorry, you were right. I, ta- I taught that wrongly. And uh, it's, you have no idea how much you're saved from because of some of those people. And so it says, God breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. When it says being trained in righteousness, we are saved to disciple. That's what it says in the Great Commission. Who are you discipling? Who's discipling you? If you want to disciple someone, call Mark on the uh, one-on-one discipleship thing and said, I want to disciple someone. Or I want someone to disciple me. Or just get a regular friendship where you're meeting together. I meet with someone almost every week that we have met together for a long time. And uh, uh, he disciples me by not talking because I never stop talking. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's so wonderful. I look forward to it some days when I see the car pull up and know we're going to meet. And, uh, and we both said things to each other at times that were really hard to take. But we're not running away from each other, so that's the way we're supposed to be living our lives. So, my exhortation, finally. Exhortation. If you are here and you've left another church because you didn't like this or that or this person and, and, and you're really just fed up with that person and you left, you need to go back to that church. Now, I'm not trying to get rid of anybody. You're probably called here anyhow, but uh, go back to that church and make it right. Make it right. I love it when somebody comes to me and it happens fairly often and said, God has really called us to another church. Here's why. And I'll say to them every time, could we have you on the platform so we can tell the people that? Because, God, this isn't the only church in town or in the world. I mean, there's lots of people get called away to other churches, and that's good. Uh, That's a very good thing. And so, uh, but make sure you don't leave behind anger or bitterness or unforgiveness at any level. Even, at the, even within this church, if there's someone that you, you're sitting over there because they're sitting over there, and, or you found out they come to this service, you now go to the other service, don't ever, ever get into that kind of a trap. It'll destroy your Christian life. You go to that person and tell them exactly how you feel. You do it as privately as you can and with as much love as you can muster and hoping that you may even have to say to the person, I'm so sorry, or the other person might surprise you and say, yeah, you're right, I'm so sorry. So we need to do that. 
And then that'll make our church even stronger. We'll all grow more, and then we'll talk to more people about the Lord because they'll see the change in our lives, and we'll be able to reach even more people here and in the world. Let me end with this um, illustration that I happen to like. When Leonardo da Vinci was painting The Last Supper, he became angry with a man and lashed out at him. He even threatened him. And then he went back to his fresco and tried to paint the face of Jesus. He couldn't, for there was too much evil stirring inside him. The lack of peace forced him to put down his brushes, go find the man, and ask his forgiveness. Only then did he have an inner calm, the inner calm needed to do the face of his master. And as uh, unrealistic as some of these frescoes might be, that's one of the great ones and reminds us of that last supper. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that we as a people will be forgiving, loving, but at the same time, when it's appropriate, rebuking and, and letting people know when they're not doing the right thing. I pray that you will help us, Father, to, to just truly love one another, to make relationships with one another. Help us to examine our own lives. And if we're independent and can get along without others, then there's something wrong. Because we all need one another. Now, Father, I wouldn't be the person that I am if it wasn't for many one another's who have had something strong to say to me once in a while. And then, Father, sometimes you've given me the privilege of being able to speak into people's lives uh, so that they'll change direction in their lives and live in the right way. Help us to be that kind of people. Help us to truly love. Even though Paul was totally disappointed in all that happened with the Judaizers, when you read this part of the letter, Father, I just see the amazing encouragement that came out of him and his words and how that would have changed the Corinthian church totally. And so help us to be like that. And if there's anybody here this morning who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, I urge you, don't let another day go by. You don't even know if you have another day without coming and just saying, you know, I am a sinner. There's no question about that. I turn from my sin. I believe God, when it says in the Bible that you love the world, that you sent Jesus, I thank you for your love. Jesus, I thank you for dying on my, the cross for my sins. And I thank you that you rose from the dead and are praying right now for me. And if you pray any kind of a prayer asking Jesus to come into your life like that, he will. And then you're going to need the local church. And then you're going to grow. And your life's going to change. And many people are going to ask you about the hope that is within you. And we can have more and more people coming to the Lord, being able to spend an eternity in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>